Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. This past August, the Business Roundtable, an association of 181 of America's top CEOs, committed to a rather remarkable pivot. Collectively, they renounced the longstanding idea that the purpose of a corporation is to ensure the interest of shareholders always comes first. Going forward, they committed to more fairly supporting the needs of all their other stakeholders, including their customers, employees, and communities. Inherent in the Roundtable's pledge is the acknowledgement that the way we've commonly managed our organizations no longer works. Our business practices have created unsustainable inequality with profits too often coming at the expense of workers and society as a whole. We see the destruction of the environment, increasing numbers of people living paycheck to paycheck despite working full time, and a stunning spike in depression, anxiety, and other stress-related health problems. For many of the companies represented on the Business Roundtable, their new vision is largely aspirational. The details on how they plan to change their leadership practices have yet to emerge, and it's especially unclear whether all 181 organizations are truly committed to solving the problems they've helped create, or whether their pledge at this point is simply an ambiguous commitment to do better. The authors of a new book called The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World, assert that the time to take committed action is really already upon us. They believe we've already reached the inflection point where leaders not only must step up and change the course of business management, they believe organizations must take ownership for healing their workplaces, along with the human beings who work for them. My guest today is Michael Gelb, who, along with conscious capitalism pioneer and Babson College professor Raj Sahodia, have written this book, one that directly asserts that corporations have become destructive forces. But through case studies of companies we all know, like Shake Shack, Eileen Fisher, Hyatt, Kind Bars, they show that the profoundly positive impact businesses can have on society by embracing more enlightened ways of leading. To any leader who's cynically minded, the benefits of their approach won't just make you sleep better at night. Around the world, the most talented people are flocking to companies who value them in ways that less conscious organizations don't. And companies which put an emphasis on doing what's right by their employees and customers and communities and the environment are proving to be the big winners in their industries, financially and otherwise. And so this podcast is devoted to understanding why companies will be wise to become healing organizations and how doing so will not only alleviate a lot of suffering in the world, it will also elevate the experience of joy in the lives of everyone who works in them. Before I welcome him, let me tell you that Michael is the author of 16 books, including one of my all-time favorites called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. He's coming to us from Westchester, New York. I'm in La Jolla, California, and through the magic of technology, we're able to be together in this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Gell. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. First off, congratulations on your book. I loved it. And I wonder if I can start things off by asking you to share why you and Raj decided to collaborate on this, because I don't see a lot of collaboration in books these days. And what were your motivations and inspirations? How did you kind of come at this? And were you looking at it from the same point of view? What's the common connection? It's a long journey. It began in the mid-90s when Raj was a professor at George Mason University in Virginia. He ran their executive MBA program, And he invited me to come in and lead a series of my three-day high-performance learning seminars. 
and they were very well received. Raj attended all of them and we made a wonderful connection. So we stayed in touch. And then a number of years later, he sent me the galleys of Firms of Endearment, his book in which he profiled companies that focused on the welfare of all of their stakeholders, not just their shareholders. And he discovered with his colleagues that those companies had superior financial returns. And the book, Firms of Endearment, was a wonderful aha for me because I'd always been working with the assumption that companies were the most powerful institutions in our world, for better or for worse, and that if I could help them to be more creative, more conscious, and yes, more compassionate, that would be a great way to make the world a better place. So that was always the way I thought about it, but I kind of thought I was on my own uh, sort of a quixotic quest to change the world through big business. And now all of a sudden, here was this business school professor writing the business case for why that was really a good idea. And then that, of course, became the whole conscious capitalism movement. John Mackey of Whole Foods, Red Firms of Endearment, invited Raj down to Austin. And that led to the two of them publishing the book Conscious Capitalism and I guess it was already 11, 12 years ago, we had the first Conscious Capitalism summits, and I was invited to keynote a few of them, and I facilitated a couple of them. I was the MC, And in one of them, Raj was actually introducing me. I was giving the closing keynote at one of the CEO summits, the theme of which was the emerging role of women in conscious business. And among the speakers on that summit were Dr. Jean Houston and Marianne Williamson, quite a lineup. But before my keynote, Raj introduced me, and he said that, something that I didn't know until that moment, he said that in those seminars at George Mason that he sat in on, he became inspired to realize that he could be creative, that he could be more than just an engineering and marketing professor, that he could really be a creative thinker. And that's part of what led him to write Firms of Endearment and Conscious Capitalism. So we had inspired each other, and once we realized that, we said, you know, we really need to do something together. So the healing organization really was born when we had that mutual aha, and then we developed the idea over the years, and here it is. Well, very good. 1990, I mean, that's quite a long-term relationship to get where you got to, and I think that's how really good work comes out when you know each other and you have an intimate understanding of their thinking. And so that really very much comes out. I couldn't tell who was writing a chapter or if, you know what I mean? There's no style differential. So well done. Throughout the world today, work is doing a lot of harm to people. We know that. Symptomatic of this is employee engagement, job satisfaction scores are cemented at record lows. Workplace stress explains 75% of all visits to the doctor's office and mental health care costs in companies now outpace physical health care costs in most organizations, I think is just stunning. Now, you guys believe that our leadership practices not only must change, but that our intention in reinventing our workplace cultures and management practices must be to ensure that we heal all of this. That's your language. Yes. And there's this quote in your book that I love, and you say, and I'm going to quote this, what we need is a mind-blowing, heart-opening, world-changing rethinking of business. 
So tell us why you believe we need organizations to become healing places and the big picture of how we get there. Thanks so much for asking because for citing that particular line in the book, because we wanted to make it really clear that this wasn't just another notion about corporate social responsibility, as good as that is, or checking some boxes on the environmental concern or diversity or all that other nice stuff. We're really talking about rethinking the fundamental purpose of business. And yes, it is to heal. And healing, when we think of what it really means, it means to return to wholeness. And we're in a dis-ease situation that you just described where 88% of Americans feel that they work for a company that does not care about them as a human being. People have more heart attacks on Monday morning. They're up 20% Monday morning at the thought of going back to work. We call Wednesday hump day and people try to make it to the bar to dull themselves to get through the week. And then we've got, thank God, it's Friday. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but it's really quite a serious situation, which, as you say, 75% of doctor visits are related to stress. And most stress is related to people's finances and their sense of not being valued at work. We have a situation in which the most prosperous nation in human history, the United States, leads the world in obesity, in opioid addiction, in gunning down our school children, and most tragically, suicide in the United States of America is up 30% in the last 20 years. And we can trace almost all of these maladies to the way we do business. Now, on the other hand, many of us are doing really well, and there's lots of prosperity and plenty of opportunity for entrepreneurship. So it's why in the book we say we're at the best of times and the worst of times, and we want to make it best of times in a more inclusive way, because as Adam Smith, the real father, well, Raj likes to call him the father and the mother of capitalism, because the wealth of nations captures the masculine yang energy And the theory of moral sentiments, which he wrote 17 years before The Wealth of Nations, captures the yin energy. And we need the harmony of those two energies in order to have capitalism be healthy and provide the abundance and prosperity and opportunity for everyone. And right now, 60% of American households are technically insolvent. So it's not a sustainable situation. There's too much unnecessary suffering. And we can do something about it by rethinking the way we focus our businesses, going away from the limiting, obnoxious notion of shareholder value being the only concern to stakeholder value. And this is happening. We saw this with the Business Roundtable. We see it in Larry Fink's letter to shareholders in 2009. He says, not just to shareholders, but to CEOs. And he says, look, if you want us to invest in you, you need a higher purpose. He says, because government's not going to solve our critical issues and nonprofits can't do it. Business is 80% of the economy. That's where the money is. That's where the power is. That's where the energy is. And the good news is so many leaders, so many CEOs are waking up to this and their consciences are awakening. That's The subtitle of the book is Awakening the Conscience of Business 
to help save the world. And this, this is really happening now. So we wanted to provide that mind-blowing, heart-opening inspiration and guidance for people who want to be part of this healing organization movement. Do you really think that it's happening now? Because when you talk about that 80% number, you would think that that would be by far the tipping point where organizations would almost instantaneously say, we've got to do something very different here. We've got to lead people in a much more caring and supportive way. And yet I have my pulse on this through social media and hear repeatedly how people feel in their jobs doesn't really sound like they're significantly better. And then obviously monetarily, there's this have and have not society. And we still continue to think that by increasing the minimum wage that we're somehow going to harm shareholders or we're going to harm the profitability and the success of a company when all the evidence is clear that when people actually are making a living wage that they go back and they spend and they drive the economy and they actually create jobs. And yet we fight this tooth and nail, you know, and I see this every day. And so what degree of certainty do you guys have that this is the time when we're really going to experience real change? Well, I would love to say that I have certainty and I can't say that. <laughs> I really don't know. Well, that's fair. I mean, I think it's probably fair because, I mean, I think there's a lot of resistance to this. Yes. Right? I mean, it's like the whole idea of we need to be a healing organization. And when you talk about the yin and yang and the, the feminine and the male, I mean, you you lose people with that. And I'm saying that because... This is whole podcast. <laughs> you're amongst friends here. <laughs> you know, you're amongst people who are already on board with what you're saying and would actually be your greatest defenders. And yet, there's this profound resistance in business to really embrace a lot of this. Her, one example I can give, I just read that even though I think that the number is two thirds of major executives in America think that about a quarter of the jobs in their companies are going to be eliminated through technology, they're not willing to make an investment in people to train them for the new jobs. They're just willing to go out and find new people to do those jobs. So we have this indifference to humanity. And that's what I'm wondering how you guys, when you were doing your research and putting this together, do you think that there's a consciousness change here? Do you think that people are really ready to go in a different direction? Or do you think that the resistance is going to win out? The certainty I do have is that this is an important critically important message and that much of what prevents this transformation is just fear and ignorance. Now, those are very powerful forces. So our job is to provide examples of how this is happening, not just how it can happen, but how it is happening because people grew up with this old notion of it's a rat race. Mm -hmm. Even the most positive people, their idea was, okay, I have to get in there. It's a rat race. It's dog eat dog. I have to crush the competition. Then I'll make a pile of money. And then I will heal my conscience by giving it away and giving to charity and mm. doing good things. This was Andrew Carnegie. The robber baron mentality, yeah. Carnegie mm -hmm. said, you know, in the first third of your life, get as much education as you can. In the second third of your life, make as much money as you can. And in the last third of your life, give away as much as you can. Except Carnegie scorched the earth and destroyed <laughs> so many lives. Mm -hmm. That model isn't sustainable anymore. You know, now we have the giving pledge. We have Bill Gates and Warren Buffett coming together in the most philanthropic, altruistic, brilliant way 
and first saying that they committed to give more than half of their incredible wealth to help humanity, and then bringing in 202 other billionaires who've signed the giving pledge and made this commitment, and it's wonderful. I just wrote a manifesto for Porchlight Books called The Giving Pledge Needs the Healing Oath, because now more than ever, it matters how you make the money. And once we know that by looking after the well-being of all stakeholders, you will be more financially successful. So it's not just about doing good. It's not just about valuing people. We have the data, and Raj has done an amazing job of putting together that data, that this is a more viable way to run your business in the world today. This is a more successful, profitable way to run your business. And our book is filled with stories of companies that are really living this, that have a higher purpose, and they're all profitable. So if you didn't know, if you thought, well, gee, I can't be profitable, it's an either or between having a higher purpose and making money, I understand, I can empathize with that. In business, we all know profitability, it's like oxygen. We, <laughs> we have this nine-year-old Akita named Sumo, and he just hangs around and breathes. And my wife and I look at him, we think, you know, Sumo, what's your purpose in life? Is it just to breathe? <laughs> he looks at you with these amazingly adorable eyes. My wife gives him a big hug, and we know he has a higher purpose, and it's love. Look, the purpose of business isn't profit. Profit is like oxygen. You have to have it in order to sustain your business, but business needs a higher purpose. Just like your life is not about breathing. You need oxygen too, you need food, but that's not the purpose of your life. It's absurd. So the purpose of business, Raj and I believe, is to alleviate suffering, elevate joy, and promote healthy growth. Well, let's talk about the current model. And this was in your book, and I thought this was really fantastic. One of the most successful and often talked about business books is Jim Collins' Good to Great. In fact, I think it's been heralded, you know, arguably Tom Peters' In Search of Excellence may be argued as the best business book or at least most successful, but Good to Great is right up there. But as you guys point out, Collins used his definition, his inherent understanding of what a great corporation, this word great gets abused here, is the ones that drove the highest profitability over a 14-year period. So that was the metric. How do we define a great company? How much money are they making for shareholders? And how much did they make over a 14-year period? But now, with enough time gone by, and we look back on the companies that he identified, <laughs> they all have some inherent flaws here. Number one is Wells Fargo Bank. I mean, one of the most fraudulent organizations over the last decade or more. Fannie Mae, which contributed to, obviously, the financial crisis in a very significant way. Philip Morris, the tobacco company whose cigarettes lower life human expectancy for about 13 years. So noting that shareholders won out by investing in these firms... How do you think we shift the value, not only from a investor standpoint, but from a CFO standpoint, which is to say, hey, we can do all of this harm and still drive profitability for companies and maybe even better profitability than we would if we took care of people, valued people, and even healed people's lives? That is the essence because Philip Morris isn't good 
and certainly isn't great. The collateral damage to society is just disastrous on so many levels. Fannie Mae, Wells Fargo. I mean, you got to be kidding me. And the sad thing is people don't go and get their MBA, study finance at business school and say, you know, I want to go work in a big financial institution so I can defraud 5,000 of our customers by opening fake accounts in their names to churn my commission. This is not what most people aspire to do when they begin their careers. They don't think, Gee, you know, I want to go and I want to you know, find a way to put more addictive additives into already addictive cigarettes in order to kill more people so I can return a few more dollars to our shareholders. This is not what you know, people start out. Most people start out wanting to make the world a better place, and then they get co-opted by this insanity that drives us towards only one metric. And I come back to Adam Smith because, yes, the wealth of nations, one of the greatest ideas ever in human history, says that freedom generates prosperity, that if we can have the rule of law and a level playing field, and you combine this with the notion of democracy, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this generates entrepreneurship, we'll try to meet each other's needs, we'll be creative, we'll be innovative in figuring out how to do that, and this will yield abundance. But we come back to the missing link, which is the theory of moral sentiments that says all of this has to take place in an ethical framework. It has to take place in an empathic and caring framework. And we have to find the balance between freedom, prosperity, and concern for the welfare of one another and for society. And the other side, which you also suggested, let's just reiterate it because it's just so important if you're that CFO, you now can check the data and discover, well, the companies that Raj profiled in firms of endearment, the ones that focus on the well-being of all their stakeholders, outperform the good to great companies significantly, just purely on financial level alone, not to mention that people's lives are enriched, that they aren't going to see the doctor because of work-related stress. Well, let me connect the dots here, though, because you just said, you know, people don't get out of graduate school and then go into business to defraud people, right? And those people are often trained to be CFOs. They don't go in to take advantage of people. They don't go in to harm people. But they get into situations where, in the moment, in order to meet an important goal or to deliver you know, a number to shareholders, they're forced with these moral dilemmas, which is, what am I going to do to get there? Yeah. And harming people in some way, shape, or form, either through layoffs or by cutting benefits or repudiating some sort of retirement accounts, whatever they do, they look at that and they say, well, in this moment, that's what I need to do. So that's the right decision. And there's no heart in that, obviously. And these decisions seem to get repeated over and over. Otherwise, we'd have greater satisfaction. We wouldn't have 80% of people unhappy, all those kinds of things. So where's the rub here? I mean, what's going to change the behavior how do people look at themselves and say, I'm not going to make that decision, yes. you know? That's why we wrote the book. So last week, I was down in Austin, as was Raj. We were co-chairs of the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. And one of the speakers at the summit was Jerry Anderson, the CEO of DTE Energy in Detroit. And Jerry was trained in business. He was engaged to run the company, huge company. I think it was around 2004, 2005. 
And he's a very down-to-earth, Midwestern, kind of solid, all-American guy. And he's in this role, and he asks himself a really honest question. He said, are we a good company? And he looked at their financial return. He said, not so good. He looked at how happy people were working there. Eh, not so happy. He looked at their customer satisfaction. He said, not so good. He said, you know, I want us to be a really good company. So everything he learned how to do as a CEO to improve performance. And one of the initiatives he began was a continuous improvement initiative, the first principle of which is people come first. Let's value our own people. And if people have a positive experience of working for us, that's going to translate out into better customer service, and that's going to translate into better returns for our shareholders. So he was preaching this gospel, and then the financial crisis hit. And his CFO and his controller came to him and said, we are in danger of becoming a junk utility. We have to cut a huge amount of our workforce. So here he was faced with just the kind of dilemma that you were describing that people tend to face in the course of their careers. And he knew that it was a career-defining moment. He said, I see what the numbers are. I see the disaster all around us. He said, but I just made a public commitment to the people in our company to say that they're the most important element of our business. And how can I get rid of 30% of them? So in this moment of conscience, he said, there has to be a way. And he called an all company meeting. And what he shared with them was, he said, look, here's the dilemma we're in. He said, and I just want you to know that the absolute last lever that I will pull will be layoffs. He said, but in order for that to happen, I'm going to need a level of energy and creativity and innovation and cooperation and collaboration that's unprecedented in the history of our company. And remarkably, that's what he got. And what's, he's telling the story of, of what happened and how it related to the numbers. He said, because the controller was coming into his office with the numbers every month, and they kept beating their expectations dramatically. And he was saying to the controller and the CFO, he said, you guys got to go back and check our models because this can't be right. But what he discovered was that because he honored his commitment to valuing his people, they brought a level of energy and creativity. Absolutely. Engagement. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Howard Schultz did the same thing when his stock was tanking and they looked, Starbucks was wondering whether they were going to be around during the recession. He said, I'm not going to have a company if we don't continue to give people health benefits. So we're going to have to figure out another solution. Very courageous move. Jim Goodnight at SAS did the same thing. He told all of his people, go back, don't spend money and be innovative, but we're not going to do any layoffs. It's just those guys are the minority. You know, those are the minority. And what I want to do is to talk about the people who you herald in your book who are really doing this, who are really demonstrating that they can create a healing organization and not only create one, but the first one I want to talk about is Kind Bars. You know, it could have been any name, but he picked Kind Bars, you know, right? But that resonates with us and we're all buying them and we find them wonderful. And Daniel Lubitsky, I've read his book and I know his backstory, but could you kind of quickly tell us about his origin and the defining elements of his culture and why you think he is so successful? Because I want to talk about two other organizations as well. Sure. And just let's contextualize it all by saying that when we share the stories of Jerry Anderson, which is in the book, when we share the stories of Howard Schultz, when we share the stories of Daniel Lebetsky, when we tell these stories, 
Emotions are contagious for better or for worse. And if we want to spread healing and hope and positivity, if we want people to see that they can make a difference, when you read these stories, when you let them touch you, and I, you read this book, you're going to have tears in your eyes, as we do when we wrote it and when we talk to these people and when we tell these stories, because this is not just possible, it's happening. And people just need to get that it's possible and that they can be part of it. So think about, I mean, Lubetsky's story is fantastic because his father was in a concentration camp. Just the worst possible situation. People dying everywhere. And his life was changed when a guard basically risked his life and threw him a rotting potato. Now, it doesn't sound very appetizing, but it saved his life. And he never forgot that act of kindness that this guard, who was in a hugely dehumanizing situation himself, risking imprisonment and death himself to make this little gesture that saved Lubetsky. His name was Roman, Roman Lubetsky. Daniel's father, saved his life. So he grew up with this sense of incredible gratitude and kindness. And so, you know, that's the origin. That's what really was transmuted and transmitted into young Daniel, who had a vision. He started his first business, multiple businesses, actually, when he was in high school. Besides being a magician, he called himself the great Houdani. <laughs> what he magically was hoping to do was bring peace to the Middle East, by building businesses that would be collaborative between Israelis, Palestinians, Turks, Lebanese, and getting them all to work together to bring forth products that are, what's interesting is if you travel in the Middle East, the Israelis eat hummus and so do the Palestinians. The Israelis use sun-dried tomato paste and so do the Lebanese. So he was looking at, it's a brilliant idea, looking at what all the cultures there share and how to get people to work together collaboratively as a way to help promote peace. So that, that was his first series of businesses. But he learned, one of the lessons he learned in that too is that your products have to be great and people have to love them just because they love them. And then they'll be that much more responsive and open to your change the world message. You can't just say, let's change the world by this. Here's the thing is, we write about these companies. I actually, I'm, I'm a consumer, I love Kind Bars. <laughs> They're fabulous. They're transparent. Literally, the wrapping is transparent. They're healthy, but they're also delicious. And that's another thing that Lubetsky talks about is people usually think of either or it's either healthy or it's delicious. He wanted to be innovative and figure out a way to do both. And he also says, you know, being kind doesn't mean being soft. You have to be tough to run a healing business. It's not just nicey nice. It's kindness may mean giving somebody really tough feedback that they need in order to learn and grow. And that's what a kind leader is able to do. And he models all this himself, as does his team, and they celebrate each other's successes. And people love working there and people love the product and they're wildly profitable. One of the things that he said that I love and that I very much believe in is that one can be kind and caring and compassionate 
and strong, focused, powerful. It's this balance. And I think some people hear the word heart and they automatically think that's soft or they hear healing and they think that's soft, but they really have to go hand in hand. And he's a great example of that. Another great example in your book is Danny Myers, who I absolutely admire. This is um, for our audience, a restaurateur who founded Shake Shack, the Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe in New York, hugely successful restaurants. And he believes that the most meaningful thing he and his employees can do is to create positive, uplifting outcomes for human experiences and human relationships. So this isn't about serving food or tasty food. It's about elevating people's lives through the experience of going to his restaurants. And that's obviously much more ambitious than most restaurateurs think. Most restaurateurs are just thinking, how do we get customers in here and how do we get them out so we can turn tables quickly, right? It's more of the business orientation. So tell us a little bit about him and what you learned from him. Well, first thing is New York restaurant business is about as tough, competitive restaurant environment as there is in the world. And Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group has had the number one rated New York restaurant more than any other restaurant group. If it's not Gramercy Tavern rated number one, it's Union Square Cafe rated number one. And so you can actually taste the difference. And I've been going to his restaurants for years just because I love really great food, great wine, great service, great ambiance, and I want to pay a fair price for it. And I've just found myself at Danny's restaurants over the years. If you want to have a great meal in a friendly environment and pay a fair price, you're going to be really happy at any of his establishments. Then it was fascinating to figure out, well, how does he achieve that in this highly competitive environment? And one of the principles we found with a lot of these healing leaders, they do what we call alchemizing their suffering. In other words, they take their own lessons from suffering or the suffering of their parents. You know, Lubetsky's father suffered in the concentration camp, but he turned that into a philosophy of kindness and creativity. Danny Meyer grew up in a family where there was lots of discord. His parents had very different political views. They had uh, significant unpleasant arguments at the dinner table. (laughs) Although the one thing that brought the family together was travel and love of fine food and wine. And he says that he really wanted to create a restaurant to create a healthy family environment that he didn't really feel in his own home when he was growing up and to bring people together around food and hospitality. So this was his real impulse. And he and his siblings would compete for their parents' attention, as we've all experienced this if you have brothers and sisters. But he said, how do we leverage that that competitive environment and use it in a positive way. And one of, the, one of my favorite notions from Danny Meyer is what he calls sibling revelry. <laughs> Instead of sibling rivalry, create an environment where, yes, we actually do compete internally, but we do it in a way that celebrates one another's success, that we aim to inspire one another to create a level of hospitality and a level of excellence that we wouldn't be able to do if we weren't competing. So we take the notion of competition from win-lose and rat race, dog-eat-dog, and we make it collaborative, cooperative, because we're all connected and we're all part of the same 
enterprise. He's a master at doing that. And it's an idea we can then transfer into whatever other endeavors we may be engaged in. It's one of the notions we learned in all these companies. They all figure out, they all put their own people first. They realize that's the key stakeholder is your own people and celebrate their successes, inspire them beyond what they think is capable reward them for the way they support and develop one another and you create a heavenly kind of environment. Hell is when we're all undercutting one another, when we assume that there's not enough to go around and we try to take as much as we can for ourselves and take it from others. Obviously, that's very advanced thinking. And the honestly, I remember reading that line, alchemizing their suffering. So it may or may not be in the book, but it, to punctuate that, you know, even starting with Daniel Obesky, his father's experience in the death camps, obviously, the common denominator is they have suffering that they want to transmute into something that's positive. They want to give back. They want to heal it in themselves and heal it in other people. And so this is your language to create a healing organization. You almost need a healing leader. My question then is, do you need to have some profound loss and suffering in your life in order to leave like this? Or in other words, how can somebody who just had a normal upbringing, who didn't suffer, no history of real torment, transition from a practical business orientation leader to somebody who really wants to create a healing organization? Particularly because the way you described Danny Myers, the layers of thoughtfulness and what you just described, they're profound, right? And obviously defines why he's so successful, but you would think more people would want to adapt that. So I'll let you take off from there. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. So at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit, one of our other speakers who's also featured in the book is Ramon Mendiola Sanchez, the CEO of FIFCO. And he is one of my all-time favorite examples of a healing leader because he's exactly the kind of guy that you just described. And he's not somebody who suffered greatly on a personal level. He's a tall, handsome, good-looking, personable guy. He got his MBA, and he got his first job with Philip Morris. And he was just doing what business people do, and he was making money for them. And then he got recruited by this company, FIFCO, based in Costa Rica, that is in the business of beer and sugary drinks. So he went basically from being an efficient mobilizer of resources to addict people to tobacco to <laughs> figuring out how to make profit from something that causes alcoholism, car crashes, and obesity. Mm -hmm. Diabetes. <laughs> and again, he wasn't doing these things purposely to cause harm. It's just, you know, that's business as usual. That's how people normally think of it. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is because he was in the tobacco business for a while, he learned to deal with regulators. And when he shifted to sugary drinks and alcohol, more regulators. Plus, there were environmental impact activists that he had to deal with. And he just had this aha idea, which was, what if instead of treating these people as the enemy of my quest to maximize profit for my shareholders, what if I start to think of these people as stakeholders in our venture? These people meaning who? Meaning the, the regulators who are giving him a hard time about the sugar in their soft drinks, about the alcohol and the drinking patterns in Costa Rica, which were leading to drunken driving and so on. 
-hmm. And not to mention the environmental activists who were after him about solid waste and emissions and so on and so forth. So instead of seeing him as the enemy, he's seeing them as sort of a co-collaborator is what you're saying, which is pretty amazing. So go on. But he does this. It wasn't this wildly idealistic thing. It was just he was just a good listener a good leader, a good manager, and he's paying attention. And he says, well, you know, these are legitimate concerns. So he starts to focus. He gets the flavor scientists together who work for this company. And he says, let's figure out how to get the unnecessary sugar out of these drinks. Let's figure out how to make them still taste delicious, but dramatically lower the amount of sugar in the drinks. And he, he signs them this innovative task and they achieve it in amazing, they were so thrilled to be given a task around doing something to help people that they outperformed the expectations. Then he engaged an NGO from Canada who had a lot of experience in figuring out how do you change the patterns in which people consume alcohol? Because in Costa Rica, their research showed that people drank once or twice a week, they had five or six beers, and they were more likely to then get into some sort of difficulty not to mention what would happen if they got in their car. He said, let's change the drinking pattern so that people have one or two beers and they have it with food. And they successfully were able to, to get this transformation to take place. So what you saw were drunken driving rates going way down. And they did this through advertising, through the way they portrayed what the enjoyment of these products is all about. Meantime, he starts to focus on the environmental issues. And he says, let's reduce our solid waste impact to zero. Let's reduce our emissions impact to zero. And he unleashes the same kind of creativity in his company to achieve these goals, which they've achieved, by the way. Meantime, he's not satisfied with this. He says, let's be a positive 10% contributor to the environment across all of these levels of impact. So I'll give an example of one of the things that he, he started doing. He gets his shareholders, his employees and their customers, and they go around and they clean up the solid waste at their competitors' plants. Now, what happens to this as an environment in which people may or may not want to work? Well, it becomes the number one highest rated best place to work in Costa Rica. People start traveling from all over the world to Costa Rica to say, how are you doing this? Because their profitability improved dramatically. It's just a classic story because it's just the slow awakening of conscience and the realization of what's possible and the realization that it's just a better way to do business, to make it something that heals your community and heals your workforce rather than this notion that you have to hurt people, hurt the earth, and then you'll try to make up for it later by giving some money away. So let me ask you a question. So obviously not everybody listening into this is a CEO. And I would venture that most people listening in are saying, well, I don't work for any of these conscious capitalistic organizations. That's not my narrative. That's not my personal experience. And so one of the themes of this podcast is, you know, what can I do independently? So even if you didn't even have a boss who thinks like this, who would embrace these ideas, but you're still managing your own team. Yes. So what are the small movements that everyone listening in here can do that's aligned to creating a healing organization or more specifically, I guess, a healing team? How do you heal your own team without being concerned about whether you're working in an organization that thinks like 
like this or even work for a boss who thinks like this? Well, we go into this in the third part of the book. It's called On Becoming a Healing Leader. And we aim to take the lessons that we drew from the people and companies that we profiled and translate them into practices and orientations and intentions that all of us can do. But the first thing to say is it's important to understand that you can have influence without having formal authority. And when you understand that your influence can be much greater than your formal authority, that's the first step in actually making a difference to the people you interact with on a daily basis. So it's just recognizing that you will be influential even in the smallest things. Monica Warline and Jane Dutton have studied this extensively. They call them HQCs that are high quality connections. The ways we recognize and connect with and treat one another with respect and caring and dignity in unwavering fashion radiates out and creates a much more healing, positive culture. Now, yes, it's true that the senior leaders we know who are healing leaders have this gift. Rudyard Kipling called it the common touch. They'll treat their most important customer and the person who cleans their office with the same contactfulness and presence and openness and connectedness. So that's the first principle is recognizing wherever you are in the hierarchy, you have influence. And when you make this commitment to treat others consistently in a respectful, human, caring, and empathic way, you're radiating out and you're making a better world just in the simplest everyday level. So that's the first principle. I mean, in my experience, people are aching for that. Yes. You know, just to have a kind manager, somebody who doesn't make them feel unsafe and doesn't make them feel unsupported or threatened by any way. I mean, and it does radiate. And not only does it radiate within your own team, but kind of the experience that you've described in a lot of these companies is that once word gets out that you are that kind of a person, you start to attract a different person. You start to attract a very high caliber, totally committed person who wants to be a part of that. I think that's the reward that people don't realize is that it's not just the only people on your team. You have this sort of business-like compassion for people, but that once you get this reputation for caring for people, that there's so few people that manage this way that people will beat a path to get to you. Yes. Yes. So that's critical. And you know, the other thing too, the book finishes, we call it the healing oath. And we ask people to take this oath for themselves and share it with their team, share it with your company. Hand on your heart. Uh, hand on your uh, left hand on your heart. Uh, <laughs> you raise your right hand. And we actually, we actually put the oath in Latin just because I think things sound better in Latin. <laughs> just so you know, I mean, our Catholic friends know that the mass is just way more powerful when you hear it in Latin. So the first principle of our healing oath is primum non nocere, which means first do no harm. And the second one is malus eradicare, which means root out evil. And the third is amor vincit omnia, which means love conquers all, always operate from love. But maybe the most important one, especially if you're at a junior level in a big organization, is malus eradicare. We live in a time where we have to call on people in all walks of life to be everyday heroes, not to collude with evil. The Milgram experiments, mm -hmm. which we talk about in the book, when the experimenter says continue with the experiment, 
shock the person to death, you have to say no. When your boss says, churn this fake account to get a commission, you've got to say no. Don't collude with evil and call it out. Be an everyday hero. And if enough people get really serious that we don't have to go along with this, you know, there's nothing more powerful than the power of an idea. And supporting people who stick their neck out that way, because what you just described, when you're in a real world situation and your income is dependent upon having a job and your boss does something unethical or you see somebody doing something unethical, the risk to you is huge. Yes. And so standing up for people who do that, honoring those people and saying, I agree with what this person did and I support them. You know, I mean, that's something that we few of us think to do. But moreover, we don't think to do it because we're like, well, he stuck his neck out. I'm not going to stick my neck out. And you're calling on people to do that, to change the world that way. Yes. And, you know, when we think about the original Milgram experiments, more than 65 percent of the people in the experiment went all the way, put the lever all the way to triple X shock, which was 450 volts, enough to kill the person in the booth. Had it been real. Mm -hmm. But. If they saw someone right before them say no to the experimenter and refuse to do it, they were much more likely to say no and refuse to do it themselves. And one of the stories in the healing organization is of Hillman Consulting. And Chris Hillman was a young engineer doing an asbestos survey in a school. He published his report and his boss offered him some cash to change his report. And he said, wait a minute, you want me to accept money to poison school children? He said, sorry, I quit. And he started Hillman Consulting, a company based on integrity and goodness and kindness, which is a healing organization. And this isn't 30 years ago. Hmm. You know, we have just one lifetime. What do you represent? Who are you? Will you stand up for what you say you believe? Most people say they believe in goodness. They believe in caring. They believe in truth. Well, business is the key point of leverage if we want a world that's based on the values, the goodness, the caring that we all know is so fundamental. And once we realize, as we have, that you'll be more profitable, this is a better way to do business, why would you do anything else? I agree with you. Michael, we have a tradition on the podcast and we call it the heartbeat round. And I have a few more personal questions I'd like to ask you. But for these, we hope you'll answer each one instinctively and in a heartbeat, if you will. Okay, hence the name. So are you game? Bring it on. All right, here we go. First, one book everyone must read. The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. A well-known company that really needs to become a healing organization. Wow. Uh, how about Facebook, Amazon, and Walmart? I wish I had the bell to ring for all three of those. All agreed. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. Mm. The Giants and the Jets will not be in the Super Bowl. Yes. I, <laughs> having grown up being a fan of both of them, I know that's true. Spiritualist or philosopher who shaped your worldview the most? J.G. Bennett. I'll have to look that one up. Your synonym for the word heart. Soul. Your favorite quote or mantra. My favorite quote is, expect nothing, be ready for anything. And my favorite mantra is probably, 
I don't know, Om Namah Shivaya. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Getting into Hinduism here, very good. The leadership trait that destroys the most careers. Narcissism. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I am refining my 108 moves of the Wu style Tai Chi long form. Wow. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? New Yorker. One thing very few people know about you. I worked my way through graduate school as a professional juggler, and I juggled with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. Wow. Well, that's a whole other conversation we'd love to have with you sometime. That's pretty cool. And by the way, that story has never come up in the podcast so far. So you're very, very unique in expressing that one. And because of the book that you wrote and that I love, the most inspiring thing you learned from all of your research on Leonardo da Vinci? The most inspiring thing was that Leonardo, we call him the Womo Universale, the universal human, and that he embodied and still embodies for us today our quest to fulfill all of our human potential. So I also like to add that he invented the parachute before anyone could fly and that that is really thinking ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, listen, thank you very much for going through the heartbeat round with me. I want to get back to our discussion, but those are pretty interesting answers. So thank you very much. Thank you. I want to ask, there's one other company that you spotlighted that's across the world. We've got an audience in 128 countries, and everybody is familiar with Hyatt. And you described the CEO, Mark Hopmazian. He's the CEO, but CEO stands for Chief Empathy Officer, which, <laughs> you know, obviously I have to call that out. So how does Wall Street take this guy seriously? So, you know, I'm not the CEO, Chief Executive Officer. I'm the Chief Empathy Officer, and I run this massive hotel chain all over the world. Did people scratch their heads and say, you know, what's up with this guy? Or are the markets taking him seriously? Tell me what your perspective is on that. And why does he even call himself that? No, we call them that. We call okay. them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. But he liked it when we, we, and I have to tell you, when we interviewed him, both Raj and I were really impressed by another great quality that we all need at every level, but it's particularly impressive when we see it in people in very senior positions, which is the sense of humility. Because he actually thought he was pretty empathic and a good leader as well as a good manager. And then he got a 360 that told him, well, really, you need to improve in this. And so he went with all humility. He asked the most important person that you can ask, his partner, his spouse, his wife. And she said, uh, honey, I'm afraid you've got work to do in this area. Yeah. But that's the great thing is that these are the people who, instead of denying or obfuscating, when they get this kind of feedback, they look within and they learn and grow and change. And I was just at a Hyatt and I was talking to somebody whose job it was to clean up the banquet room. So it's somebody who's at one of the lower levels of the organization in terms of the hierarchy. But she just seemed to have this wonderful energy. We had this fabulous conversation. And I told her about, not just about the book, but I said, Hyatt is in it. And I said, we, you know, we talked to Mark. And she said, oh, yeah, he's the best. That's right. <laughs> so here's somebody at the absolute hierarchical bottom of the organization 
But that empathy and the sense of care and concern so that the 110,000 people who work for this global company feel connected, feel engaged, feel, and by the way, they're all they're all part of Hyatt's goal, which is to help facilitate wellness, not just in their establishments, but in their communities and for all the people they serve, including and especially their employees. What we realized that this was not just some PR thing that they were trying to do. They're really sincere about serving healthy food, creating wellness spaces, and approach to wellness and wholeness, which again, wellness, wholeness, that's healing. And they're making it part of their culture. And the people that we've talked to who work there love this. And we actually, I actually I signed a copy of the book for this woman. Crystal was her name. And she was just beaming to be part of this 110,000 strong organization that's helping to make the world a better place. That's what we all want, isn't it? I mean, seriously, at any level of an organization is to know that what we do matters and that somebody knows who we are and cares about us and that we're integral to the success of all the stories you've told. Every time people feel inspired in that way, their performance transcends what we think they're capable of doing. So I love the idea of a healing organization and a healing leader. And I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast on behalf of my entire audience. We're very, very grateful and we wish you wonderful success to you and Raj. And thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. As we close out the show, I want you to know that we have just one more episode coming before we take our end of the year break, and it features an extraordinarily brilliant guest, and you won't want to miss it. As I hope you do, I always use the final weeks of December to reflect and plan for the new year ahead, and this time I could use your help. If our podcast is valuable to you, can you please let us know? Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts, introduce us to your friends and colleagues, become a subscriber, reach out to us in any way to tell us that you'd like us to keep going. We would very much appreciate it. And encouragement, as you know, goes right to the heart. And it will help us decide whether to return for a third season, whether this continues to be valuable for you. As always, I want to thank my mighty team, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Ken Boynton, webmaster Randy Yant, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. I'm a lucky guy to have such incredible support. And before I go, I want to leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley. Thank you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.